Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the star line by a playwright, television writer, and screenwriter, and his pal, the actor, comedian, and financier. A glorious career in Hollywood will direct toward Zach. Their stories of Hollywood are vast and amazing, but for today, we'll start with the indie comedy from the 80s, whose delays are legendary in Hollywood lore. We welcome Neil Cohen and Zach Norman, writers of the movie Chief Zabu. Thank you, Sean. Let's go beyond the mic. The movie is brilliant, especially for the 1980s. How did you come together to write it? Oh, Neil's well, got the story very yeah, I got clearly. The story. I, I was a uh, playwright, couldn't make a living, so I was tending <coughs> bar and uh, picking up food as a busboy. Did a play, and it got some attention, and an agent showed up, told me how much he liked it, and so I said, well, could you help me make some money? And he said, oh, absolutely. It, it show up in my office Monday. So I showed up in his office Monday and he told me to start answering phone calls. <laughs> so <laughs> I became the assistant to an agent. I was uh, working there. And, and one day, two guys come in. One of them is Zach Norman. And one of them is Robert Downey Sr., the father of Robert Downey, who had made a string of very strange avant-garde comedies in the late 60s and 70s. And here he was with Zach Norman. And I knew who both these guys were. And the guy who ran the agency pulled me aside and said, I have no idea who these two men are. Handle this. (laughs) (laughs) You would know who they are. So they were looking to make a movie. They were looking for a piece of talent that was represented by the agency. We spent about 20 minutes. We made the deal. I walked them to the elevator. Zach got in the elevator, came back out and said to me, you look like the most unhappy man on earth. <laughs> and I said, I am. I don't want to be here. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to write stuff. He said, well, show me something you've written. He, I showed him some things I've written. And he said, okay, quit your job and come work for me. So that's how we came together. And Zach starts telling me a story about being summoned to the Sherry Netherland Hotel, a very famous, very fancy hotel on Central Park in New York for a business meeting. There's going to be a new business project. And he walks into the meeting and he sees every hustler and every con man in the city of New York surrounding a guy named shown up from Southwest Africa, trying to break away from South Africa, form a new nation. He's got a meeting at the UN and he's surrounded by every crook and hustler in New York. And for some reason, Warren Beatty and Elizabeth Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Zach knew this guy was doomed and uh, uh, left the meeting, except uh, Zach will give you the line that the hustler who set up the meeting said to him. He came back. He told me this story. I said, we got to put away everything we're writing. This is the movie we got to write and make. What was the date on that, Neil? When did you start the writing process? Since I've never been posed this question before, Zach, I could only mean, understand I'm being set up for a gag. Not at all. I'm just, I'm just trying to remember. Probably, I don't know, 1985 or something. And, oh, wrong, and, and man. Sean man. doesn't know. I'll say it was Thursday at 3 p.m. on February <laughs> no, 20th. I think, I think it was uh, about 78. Oh, really? How about that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But at any rate, it's pretty well easy to document because eight months later uh, from that meeting, Chief Clement Capu 
who became Zebu, was assassinated, unfortunately, eight months later after the meeting. So at so, that point, we said uh, that's not the basis of a comedy. Let's move no. this kind of comedy about these hustlers and a third world country to the South Pacific, because at that right. point, a bunch of island nations were trying to break away from France in the South Pacific, while simultaneously, France was still openly testing nuclear weapons on their right. islands and around right. their islands. So we said, okay, this is funny. We'll have our guys in New York dreaming of uh, coconuts and palm trees and uh, pretty girls on islands that the, the French are dropping nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay, you got to give me the payoff. What was the line that the hustler said? Oh, what was the line that the hustler said to you when he invited you to the meeting? He said to me, and it was a guy I had worked with. We'd done a couple of movies together. And a very nice guy. He said, let me tell you something. There's no more conventional mergers and acquisitions. The name of the game today, Zach, is countries. Wow. And that's where we're going. You pick out what you want. You know, do you want to grow things? Do you want to import, export? And uh, the country was called Namibia. And they eventually, 20 years later, uh, became a member of the United Nations and are a country today. Now, the story of shooting this film is interesting. You're supposed to be in South Asia, South Pacific, Anywhere but a college in yeah. New York. Yeah. They, well, the, 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 the interiors are all in the college. And, and we had a great studio to work in, which was the college. And we actually lived in the dorms during a hiatus period for the college. And we ate in the cafeteria. So how better can it be for a real studio like that? And, See, Zach uh, had a friend who <laughs> was the producer of the movie, a, line, a very seasoned line producer. He said, uh, guys, uh, you know, you're pretty ambitious on what you're trying to do here. I know the maintenance guy at Bard College, and if we give him a couple of bucks, he'll let us uh, decamp there for a week and a half, and that's where we'll shoot the movie. So anytime you see us, we spent, I think, a day and a half shooting in Manhattan. Anytime you see us walk in a door in Manhattan, the interior is someplace inside Bard College. Exactly. And we would stand outside the Plaza Hotel in New York and say, Let's go inside and bingo, we're at Bard College. And it looked, it looked great. It felt great. I believed it after a while. There's only one person, the star of the movie, who refused to participate in living at the dormitory. He wanted a hotel. And if I were a star, I'd want a hotel, wouldn't you? Yeah, so, so we he, put him up at one of the <laughs> oldest hotels in America, the Burke. Oh, it, it's in Rhinebeck. What we didn't know and he didn't know is that the place is haunted. So every <laughs> night he would hear noises in this hotel and drive for 20 minutes and show up at the dorms because uh, he was scared of ghosts walking around this. old the Beekman Arms, that's what it was called. And, and so, you know, we would shoot in New York. We didn't have any permits, of course. We would just set up shots and run in and out of places like the Plaza hotel and different office buildings and the only time we had a problem is in the movie 
there's two Tiburacan spies who are spying on Chief Zabu, and they're going to go to the French consulate and tell on him. So we had these two guys, and we said, walk up Fifth Avenue, go into the French consulate, and come out again, and then we'll go to the next shot. So we filmed them coming up Fifth Avenue. They go into the French consulate, and they don't come out. What? And it's like five minutes, <laughs> 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, we, and we started to worry. In, and uh, he finds them being interrogated by the French police. <laughs> so he, he drags them out and we all go uh, running away. Um, uh, yeah. So everything you see in Anytime you're inside any place, a radio station in Tiburaco, a uh, hardware well, the, store in Tiburaco. Most important, for, most important for me, when we went to the island, I mean, that's pretty tough to uh, replicate in a college. Yeah. But I fortunately had a timeshare in the Caribbean. <laughs> so we spent our Polynesian time at my timeshare. <laughs> so you had the inside of Bard College, the outside of the Pierre, and the and the whole timeshare for the island that we took over. Oh my gosh! And oh my then there's God. the scene at the very end where uh, Zach's in a nightclub in Las Vegas, and what that was was a hotel that was going out of business uh, that had been there for some fifty years. A the Neverly Hotel, by the way. Yeah, yeah. called the Neverly Hotel. They were going out of business, and so we said, "Can we?" use the ballroom and anyone who's stay, still a guest in the hotel could come and watch Zach Norman work on stage. So that's how we replicated Las Vegas. You see, Sean, we didn't know when you make your first low budget movie and you only have 15 days to do it. And it's the first time you're directing a movie as well as the first time you're directing a movie together <laughs> that conventionally you're not supposed to have 43 speaking roles, 23 locations and have it take place in three uh, cities on two continents. Those are the voices of Neil Cohen and Zach Norman writers, directors, chief bottle washers of a 1980s film. Now that have finally seen the light of day chief zabu and they joined me beyond the mic now there was a reason we haven't seen this movie in 40 years talk about the small problems <laughs> small that started with distribution it wasn't called a problem it was called bankruptcy a week before we opened and this was in la new york and across the country and a very good distributor independent notified us that uh, they were going into bankruptcy. And that was it, man. We, we didn't quite digest the fact that three years later, we're still waiting to get our picture back. <laughs> and all of a sudden, one day, it was really quite amazing. How many years later, Neil, after this 30 years, bankruptcy? 30, about years. 30, almost 30 years, almost 30 years later, he and I are lunching one day and we hear that a man that was very much a part of the movie kind of drove the main character because the main character is a New York real estate developer who really uh, was, was about politics. Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he had just built the Trump Tower in New York a few years before we shot and he was the most, uh, probably the most important visual entity in the city. 
So all of a sudden we find this guy has just announced that he's running for president of the United States. And we looked at each other and we said almost simultaneously, let's go find this movie. We made a movie about a New York real estate developer who wants to be in politics. So let's go see if we could uh, find this film that uh, uh, we now had a search for for quite some time before well, we it took found the original negative under some old tax records and some laundry in Zach's basement under the staircase. That's so, really moly. Because so, all we had, you got to understand, Sean, all we had was a fifth-generation VHS tape of this thing. Uh, we take this uh, film can to the last place that handles actual 35-millimeter film to a place called Photochem in Los Angeles, and we uh, tell the story of the movie to the guy who runs Photochem, and we say we need this transferred to digital. The only problem is we don't have any bread. We don't have any money. <laughs> and the guy listens to the story. He says, you know, this is the craziest story I've ever heard. But legitimately, even though you're an aggregate 143 years old, you are legit first-time independent low-budget filmmakers. So I'll give you the student rate to transfer this thing. So how much did it cost to get transferred? I very little. Very, very little. little. That's hundreds of dollars by the time the guy knocked down all. He really, he really. There. Don't run to photo chem because you ain't going to get that deal. <laughs> no. In order to get that deal, you have to hide your movie for 30 years. So, uh, uh, yeah. So then we had a movie on digital that we could then uh, do another pass through to see what we've learned after 30 years. And that is probably, the, for me, the biggest part of the story. What happens to a human being in 30 years? Because when we looked at the picture that we made, and we liked it when we made it, we had a different perspective 30 years later. And we went to work. We had no outtakes because we didn't save those. And we just cut from what we had, the finished picture. And I don't think we had one argument over one yeah. cut that's how easy it was and bingo there we had a picture 15 minutes or more shorter than we started with but a picture that we both loved yeah and that's yeah. that's the bottom line so the point is you know keep reflecting because man you do unconsciously sometimes consciously learn so much as the time passes now even though the film was well lost you both moved on Neil, you wrote for 24, Man in the Machine, and the Equalizer TV shows. Yeah. While, Zach, you were on Romancing the Stone, Cadillac Man, and Ragtime. Right. Now, while I have Neil Cohen and Zach Norman beyond the mic, it'd be a shame for me not to ask you. You guys have been in Hollywood for over 160 years combined. That's it. How do you think Hollywood has changed, improved, and declined since you got there? It's such a great question, you know. Uh, one of the things that's changed is this pandemic. I mean, th this, is, this is unbelievable because the business stopped. Truly, from my perspective, making movies and being in movies, that just can't go on. A few pictures were started, but people are ill and they're afraid and they can't do this and that and the other thing. But slowly... The business changed, I think, mostly because of the growth of television. It really, you know, the movies became a secondary thing to what 
the blossom of TV became in every single area. So that's what my observation is. What's yours, Neil? Well, I think the biggest observation is when I got into the business, you had to ask permission to do anything. I mean, there were so many doors you had to get through and so many gatekeepers that you had to ask per- permission and or get permission from. So if you got a break and if something's fell your way and you were one of the few people who could make a living at it, you know, you made a good living. There was a whole thing when I came up in the 90s called a middle-class writer. That's a thing that doesn't even exist anymore. Now it's either absolutely poverty row or people at the very top making a whole lot. So that's sad, but what is revelatory, and I think there's probably a lot of people your age and young people listen to your show, is the idea that everyone's walking around with a film studio in their pocket. That's right. That you don't have to ask anyone's permission. If you have an artistic vision to make a short film that's three minutes or 37 hours, (laughs) you can sit down and say, I've got a vision. I'm either a sensible person or a certifiably insane person, but I could put my vision. You can make it. And That's I could right. put it on YouTube. I could yeah. set my own website. And the fact that the shackles have been taken off from you being creative actually kind of puts another pressure on a creative person because you don't have a lot of excuse why you don't follow down your dream. Well, you can have a dream today very easily, but the difference is in the old days when you made something, people came to see it. Right. Now Now you can make whatever you want and maybe nobody will see it. Right. So you have to, you're back to kind of, you're back to being a a, a guy in the south of France or in Texas or in California with a canvas in 1870 and a bunch of paints, you know, well, I could be a painter if I want. Nobody may see my paint and nobody may buy it, but if I'm compelled to do it, I'm going to do it. But you really can do it and you can learn. Yeah. And that's a great part of it. Before you couldn't do anything without the big time. Yeah. And now you really have it right in your pocket. And it's a great, a great way for young people to learn how to make movies. I mean, I'll give you a really weird one. When I started, if you wanted to put on a play in New York City, in Greenwich Village, you would rent a garage. You would rent a loft for a couple of hundred dollars and you could put on a play and then people would come to see it. But the idea of doing something on film was impossible. Now, because of what rents are like in a place like New York or Los Angeles or probably in Austin or Houston, you actually can't afford to put on a play, but you can afford to make a movie or a television show. It's just amazing what you both see from those times. And it's technology, really. That's what the whole the whole thing is that, that young people can take such advantage of and they can be shooting in their backyard in their bedroom and really learning the business. Now, this is from a guy who did his first television show. Are you ready for this? In 1952. 
Wow. And I had I I was a drummer in a band, and I had my own band, and there was a a local television show, and we went on there with my band, and I spoke, and I never knew what nervous meant when I introduced the band, and I'm standing in behind my bass drum. All of a sudden, my legs started to shake, and I had absolutely no idea why they were shaking, and of course. Soon thereafter, I figured it out. I was speaking to this audience, and I was so nervous without me consciously understanding it. So well, that was a whole, whole beginning for me. For, for me, the first time that I got nervous um, was immediately displayed and dismissed by my dad. Who, who my dad, who, who my dad didn't say, I don't want you to think about that. You're talking on a hundred thousand watt radio station. I don't want you to think about this. I, I want you to think about one thing, one thing only. You are getting paid to talk to a wall. <laughs> and I went, dad. And he goes, he goes, is there anyone there? No. Is there, is there any side of glass? No. You're talking to a wall. I never, never, never heard that before. That's Maybe great. I would have had a better career had I heard it. <laughs> I was always talking to somebody. I just didn't know who. But one of the things, and I don't know how involved you get involved in, with this, Sean, is the editing process. Because when you get to edit something you've shot or you've recorded, it's like another draft of what you've done. And one of the reasons that we never got back to Chief Zabu after we made it and then after Zach was able to get it back from the distributor after many, many years is when we made the movie, in order to edit the movie, you had to go into an editing room with a man who was usually a sourpuss, maybe smoking a cigar, and it cost you $200 a day, if not a hundred hours an hour with a guy telling you you didn't know what you were doing and I'll do it for you. Well, all of a sudden we found out a couple of years ago you can hire an unemployed actor who's got a laptop for $200 a week to edit your movie. It doesn't matter if she's living in a neighborhood where everyone's got a, uh, a bracelet on their ankle because they're out on parole. You can, and this was true. That's where we edited the movie in her apartment. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it, for a couple of hundred bucks, you can edit something. Time's running out, so it's time for the Rocky Need. Eight random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Now, since we have two people... We'll start with Neil, then we'll go with Zach. There is no pressure. Well, that's easy for you to say. I wrote them, so there's no pressure for me. Other than each other, the funniest person you've ever worked with? Uh, my wife, actually, who is an art director, and uh, we've howled with laughter, and also the only person I fight with vociferously creatively. <laughs> Lenny Bruce. Oh, if you could work with anyone on a project other than each other again, who would it be with? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a tough one. If I could work with anyone on a project, well, gee, I mean, I'd love to work with the, the Cone brothers. I mean, the stuff, the Big Lebowski and the, uh, those guys are just uh, in any capacity. As the janitor, I'd like to work with those guys. Lenny Bruce. Yeah, well, it was a, it, more than a joy. It took me to places that I never even thought about. I grew up 
you know, working in nightclubs behind uh, uh, the guy that came out, the comic. And I saw all kinds of comics and I liked it. I liked what they did. They made six times more money than me. All the girls liked them. So, I mean, I was preparing without knowing I was preparing. What was the biggest joy in your life? Wow. Uh, Well, creatively, I think the biggest joy of my life was uh, writing and illustrating a kid's book a couple of years ago, which then got a a, a terrific review in the New York Times and in some comic book zines around the country. And the first time I actually sat at a table signing this book, copies of it to strangers, a book called American Gargoyles. It was the weirdest and and, and most wonderful thing. Yeah. The greatest joy I ever had, one thing, is Chief Sabu. And I'm not kidding. I'm not Ah. promoting it. It was such a journey that there's nothing like it. Who portrayed James Bond the best? Uh, Sean Connery. But I'll say Sean Connery. That's yeah. reality. Yeah. Uh, it's not about fashion. It's about being who, who could be best tied to a table as a laser beam is coming up between his legs. I mean, uh, I don't expect you to talk, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Favorite place to vacation. Favorite place to vacation for me is the Hudson Valley of New York in the countryside, very rural, very beautiful area of America. I enjoy St. Croix and the south of France. What was the most predictable moment of your life? Most predictable moment of my life? What a brilliant question, man. That's like uh, eight years of psychiatry to go with that one. What's the most predictable I've got 30 years, Neil. Well, I've got 30 years. So for me, it's kind of easy. The most predictable moment uh, is uh, dying. (laughs) and it gives me such joy that conscious understanding that this is a temporary moment and i want these moments now to last longer than anything i've ever experienced and they do yeah i guess the most predictable thing for me is uh on some level i will screw up every opportunity But nowadays, I don't mind that. Now that your magnum opus has been released, what's next for both of you? I'm I'm back to theater. I'm doing a show. well, it's a it's a comedy with music, and I'll be back on your show to tell you about it once we do the workshop up in the Berkshires next year. So uh, that's that's what I'm focused on uh, right now, as well as uh, the a, a launch of American Gargoyles. There's a company, a media company that's optioning it, and uh, we hope to be talking about doing a special next year. And next for me is a memoir. A start from the beginning, and hopefully it changed from me becoming famous and making a lot of money to affecting a few lives by my story. And are you neat or messy? Messy and loving it. I never thought about anything else but mess. Two Hollywood legends who both thought Sean Connery was the best Bond got their actors stuck in the French embassy and wants you to go see Chief Zabu. Neil Cohen, Zach Norman, thank you so much 
for taking the time to talk with me today. And thank you, because I got to say, I never, never experienced anything more than your insightful overview in this interview. So thank you, really, truly. Sean, totally. I mean, these questions, I'm going to be thinking about this thing for the next three weeks, hoping to call you back with some better answers. But this was, this was a deep, this was a deep session, Unusual, Sean. Unusual and delicious. Yeah. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. 